When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. You're listening to Campus Killings, brought to you by Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, DNA ID, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, and Citizen Detective. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Today's episode takes us to Southwest Texas State University, where what should have been another fun fraternity party winds up in a young man's murder. On Sunday, February 7, 1999, at 3.15 a.m., San Marcos, Texas police received a 911 call about an injured person. They responded to 501 Academy Street the Tau Kappa Epsilon Fraternity Party House on Frat Row at Southwest Texas State University, a school with approximately 21,000 undergraduate students. Now, I think that makes it a midsize, Amy. Would you agree? Yeah, I'd say so. That night was bid acceptance night, known as bid night at the fraternity, when everyone in the frat, particularly the new inductees who've survived a semester of abuse and were now acknowledged as brothers, blows the lid off the place. Do you remember this? You were in a sorority. I think we've discussed this, correct? For one semester. <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. But you surely remember bid acceptance night? Of course. And I've heard about, you know, I, I know many people that went through the experience. It's quite different, I think, for fraternities than sororities also. It is, definitely. But I remember this quite well. Okay, so this is bid semester night, but police officers have been called. And when the officers arrived no doubt expecting to find some underage pledge passed out from drinking, they found that the house was very quiet. In fact, the party was over. So the officers waded through the empty beer cans and cigarette butts and found something else entirely. They found an unconscious young man laying on a dirty tan sofa on the main level of the teak house. His head was bloodied and battered, the couch under him stained with blood. He'd been beaten with a blunt object as he lay passed out on the couch drunk. His name was Nicholas Nick George Armstrong, a 21-year-old teak pledge. Nick died, unfortunately, on Monday the 8th at Breckenridge Hospital from blows to the head that left him with a fractured skull. He never recovered consciousness. The Travis County Medical Examiner did not chalk his death up to a drunken fall or a mishap, though, Amy. Nick's death was declared a homicide almost immediately. He'd received, in fact, five blows to the head with a heavy metal object. Any one of those blows could have or would have killed him, San Marcos Police Chief Steve Griffith said. 
So let's talk a little bit about who Nick was. Nick grew up in Baytown, a suburb of Houston. His parents were George and Becky Armstrong. George was a chemical plant supervisor, and Becky was a kindergarten teacher. Nick had two siblings. He was the middle child. Nick graduated from Ross Sterling High School in Baytown, the class of 1996. Wow, that's the year I graduated. In high school, he was an athlete, playing football and running track. He sang in the church choir at Grace Methodist Church, and according to his parents, Nick was devout. He also worked in the church youth camp during the summers to help pay for school, and he was a member of a church youth organization that helped repair homes for needy folks. So, he's really a good kid. Mm -hmm. Nick had started out his college career at Lee College in Baytown, but transferred to the much bigger SWT after his freshman year, where he was happy on the large, outdoorsy campus. As a 21-year-old sophomore at SWT, Nick was studying communications. His dream was to host his own cooking show on TV. A family friend told the Austin American Statesman, sometimes just referred to as the Statesman, quote, Nicholas was so caring and loving to everyone in the church. He helped the little old ladies who hugged him when they saw him, and he worked with little children in activities during the church services. People who knew Nick said he was friendly and cheerful. He was always on the go. He had tons of friends. He was very social, and he really loved nothing more than playing pickup basketball with his buddies. Per the statesman, his best friend, Ben Renfro, said, Whether he knew you or not, he loved everybody and treated everybody like they were special. Now, Nick did not originally want to pledge a fraternity, saying that, and I thought this was interesting, that he had too many friends to limit himself to socializing with just one group, which I think is pretty mature for his age, too. But he did change his mind, much to his parents' surprise. Well, Nick was very close with his mom, and he talked to her on the last day of his life, which was February 6th. But he told her that he was really excited to have a weekend off after working double shifts at Outback Steakhouse every weekend since Christmas. The next morning at 6 a.m., Becky and George's phone rang, telling them that their son was in the hospital and unconscious. He died on Monday. The dean of students, John Garrison, told the Paris News, quote, In my 24 years here, this is the first student we've lost in a fraternity-related incident. We've always counted ourselves among the blessed. Of course, to the family, our deepest sympathy and concern and our outrage— that something like this could happen at Southwest Texas. Now, the tragedy hit the school pretty hard, as you could probably imagine. And Student Affairs VP James Studer said Nick's death was the last straw for the university. What does that mean? For like for a fraternity life? Yeah, that's a great question. That's exactly what it means. They had battled really um, binge drinking among the students, which had escalated out of control in recent years. In 1998, after two students who were passed out drunk were sexually abused in their dorms, school officials had taken steps to reduce drinking at fraternity parties, aware that the school had become known as a party school and, you know, wanted to avoid that reputation. In the fall of 1999, the school implemented programs requiring the heads of student organizations and new members of Greek organizations to attend alcohol education programs designed to warn students of the signs of alcohol abuse, incapacitation, and peer pressure. They made students watch, um, oh God, DD roms <laughs> CDs no longer in really existence, that 
simulated the effects of alcohol on the senses, what it does to you. School officials even urged professors to give tests on Fridays in order to reduce Thursday night partying. I thought that was an interesting twist because you remember Thursday nights were always the nights out, right? Yep. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. But for some of us like me, I didn't have school on Fridays or I didn't take classes on Fridays. But I still think that was kind of crafty thinking. However, all these measures failed to curb the problem. In the week leading up to the homicide, which was rush week for the fraternities on campus, school officials had received notice that many of the Greek system organizations were not following protocols. You know, I'm not surprised there, um, to be honest. You know, this is Greek life as we had known it, I guess, it, during our time. And that's right, right around the time where I was going through the sorority. And I imagine you were. Fraternities accounted for 1,000 students at Southwest Texas, but the groups were disproportionately involved in the party scene, which is not much of a surprise either. During rush week, fraternities observed an open-door policy allowing anyone in, which resulted in massive blowout gatherings that quickly spiraled into chaos. No one was carding at the door, so underage students were permitted to drink without kind of any cares. Hazing was on the rise, On midnight, the 6th, at least one student, Aaron Durante, was hospitalized with alcohol poisoning after a hazing ritual at Kappa Sig and had a blood alcohol level of 0.508, which is five times the legal limit for driving in Texas, according to the statesman. This is really an astounding amount. And it's so he survived, but he had permanent kidney damage. And that's really uh, quite a consequence for one night of drinking, especially when you're younger and you just don't think about that. Mm-hmm. And another student had died under similar circumstances just a few years earlier. Six students were arrested for underage drinking on midnight alone. It was the Wild West. And when Nick was hospitalized and then died, the school employed the nuclear option. President Jerome Supple suspended 14 fraternities on the spot after declaring a finding of, quote, excessive and inappropriate alcohol use among the group's members. Student Affairs VP Jim Studer said, we are calling a halt to it. We have a systemic problem here and we have to address it. In order to be reinstated, each fraternity had to apply for affiliation with the university after presenting plans on how they intended to clean up their acts. This was to include community service and commitment to academics over social events. During their suspension periods, they were not permitted to engage in fraternity activities without a supervising adult present. Officials also started investigating where all these fraternities were obtaining their alcohol, who was buying all the alcohol for these parties, and students were required to attend alcohol awareness seminars held on campus. All of these measures sound positive. I can't imagine college students taking them very seriously, though. No, and also, I'll discuss it briefly later, but what's the problem with this response? They took immediate action. They suspended all the fraternities. I understand that reaction, but, you know, as I teach in my policy class, immediate reaction to a tragic event is usually not the best way for prevention in the long term. Meanwhile, there's a homicide investigation going on. Detective Dan Masayasek of the San Marcos PD was the lead investigator. He was tasked with finding out who had struck Nick in the head while he slept on the tan couch drunk, after the party wound down, too. Based on witness reports that Nick was passed out on the couch before the party ended, 
and the blood stain and wound patterns, they were able to figure out that Nick was prone on the sofa when he was struck. So he was believed to be passed out or at least asleep. He never woke up, Amy. Whoever had attacked him had done so when he was defenseless completely. It does not appear that there was any allegation of either an altercation, equal culpability, or self-defense here. I guess the point I'm trying to make is this seemed like a sneak attack. Amy, you teach sneak attack. Is that the same as a blitz attack? Yeah, I usually explain it as a blitz attack. Yep. It's when someone is totally defenseless. Okay. SMPD Sergeant Brian Mobley said that they didn't know what kind of weapon had been used to strike Nick. Officers were checking all the trash barrels, the dumpsters, and bins on the Teak property and surrounding areas on Sunday. An unenviable job. It's not clear whether they ever found the weapon, but according to Texas Monthly, it was a metal baseball bat. Investigators started interviewing the Teak brothers who were at the party to try to get a handle on who all the attendees were. It was a long list, but they quickly gathered information that there had been a skirmish at the Teak party earlier in the evening. Specifically, four male non-fraternity members had shown up at the party around midnight. They didn't know anyone in the Teak Brotherhood, and they were just looking for a party, said Chief Griffith. When someone at the party questioned what they were doing there, there was a confrontation which resulted in some arguing and pushing and shoving between these men and some of the Teak brothers. The four had been asked to leave the party after this disturbance, and they left. But two of the men had been seen again at the frat house just 15 minutes before the 911 call came in. Now, shortly after 3 a.m., Clint Hart, a Teak brother, left a house nearby where he was continuing to party. He went into the Teak house to snag some leftover beers. Not uncommon. When he got inside, the house was silent and dark, but he was startled to see two guys he didn't recognize standing in one of the rooms downstairs. This from the Texas Monthly's January 2000 expose on the case. Entering the dilapidated, trashed, two-story building on Academy Street, he was as surprised to see the other people in the frat house as they were to see him. There were two of them, and they didn't look like frat boys. One was tall and skinny with longish hair and an earring, and he wore a baseball cap backward and a white shirt. The other, shorter and stockier, with a crew cut and a brooding scowl, had on a black shirt with the logo of the metal group Pantera. The only light was in the next room, and it was shining on someone who was asleep on the couch. Nick Armstrong, one of the new Teak Pledges. Clint watched Nick lying there peacefully as he apprehensively made conversation with the strangers. He had a bad feeling about these guys. So Clint asked the two, basically, if they were there to steal. He saw Nick asleep on the couch and thought the guys might be after his wallet, which I don't think is an unreasonable assumption at this point. No, they said. They weren't there to steal. They were just looking for people to party with. The tall one said he was from Lockhart and had been at the party earlier that evening. Now, Clint told the two that they should leave because the Teak brothers would be back soon. Now, this was a lie, but he had an uneasy feeling about these guys and he was looking for a way to get them out, I think. He walked out of the house with them, but as he walked toward the house where his girlfriend was, he looked back and saw the tall guy running back to the teak house. Clint decided it was time to call in reinforcements, and so he zipped off to find some more of his brothers. Um, Good instincts at this point, too. When they got back to the house, though, just minutes later, reportedly, it was empty. 
Nick lay on the couch, his head smashed in and blood everywhere. This happened in a short amount of time. At this point, Clint called 911. And the police set out to try to find out who these two men were that Clint saw, one of whom had admitted to being there earlier. No one at the teak house knew who they were, though, or how they had heard about this party. But investigators got a lucky break on Monday when one Teak brother called the police department and shared some information. He said that during the party on Saturday night, he had jotted down the license plate number of a van that had been parked outside the party. Chief Griffith told the statesman, quote, he said the van and its occupants did not seem to belong in that area and it made him suspicious. Whether this kid knew that the van belonged to the four men who had been asked to leave the party is really unknown, but with the license plate, with this information, the police were able to make some headway as to the identities of the men who were seen in that teak house. And again, I think this is good instincts to jot down the license plate of a van number simply because you didn't recognize it. Yeah. So the police were then able to look at the identity of the van owner, and they focused on a 21-year-old former student at Southwest Texas named Jeremiah Marshall Wilkerson. And now a brief word from our sponsors. Chief Griffith told the Tyler Morning Telegraph, quote, we believe only two individuals were at the house at the time the assault occurred. We had statements and evidence to the effect Mr. Wilkerson was the individual who actually went into the house and committed the assault that led to the death. How did they, where's that connection? They must have had some evidence. Yeah, they certainly did. I'm going to tell you about it in a minute. But remember, there was a second person with him at the time. But the information gathered by the police indicated that the second man, Dustin Warmack, waited outside. Remember, Clint only saw one tall guy running inside, and that was Jeremiah. So based on his eyewitness identification, they could connect him. Now, Jeremiah had attended Southwest Texas during the 1996 to 1997 academic year. He'd been one of the four men involved in the disagreement with the Teak brothers who were asked to leave the house. Nick Armstrong was not involved in this altercation. Jeremiah's brother Christopher was one of the other men with him, and he told the police that Jeremiah was drunk when the fight happened. Police believe that Jeremiah and his buddy Dustin returned very late, probably inebriated, and very angry about being kicked out earlier and sort of hell-bent on revenge. At the house, the party was over, but they found Nick sleeping on a downstairs sofa, and he was the only party in the house, which was solely pretty much a party house, not a residence. Nick had nothing to do with any of it. You know, according to Chief Griffith, he didn't believe that Nick was involved in the disturbance at all. It was just a senseless act. He was kind of at the wrong place at the wrong time, and again, they didn't believe he ever woke up. And there was no indication that the victim, Nick, and the suspects knew each other whatsoever. The only motive that we had here is that they were just angry because of what happened at the party before. I know this is one of those awful cases because it's truly senseless in every aspect. The San Marcos Police Department issued a photo of Jeremiah Wilkerson within a day of the incident. This was a snapshot that had been taken by someone at the party. They distributed his photo to newspapers and TV stations and asked them to run it and requested that the public call in tips about Jeremiah's whereabouts because they didn't have him at this point. They soon received information that Jeremiah could be found at Van Zant County. They started preparing an arrest warrant for Jeremiah Wilkerson. 
But just as soon as they started, they called a halt to the documentation preparation process. Steve Griffith, the San Marcos police chief, received a call in the office about 6 p.m. on Tuesday. His department had everyone in the area on the lookout for Jeremiah, who was labeled the suspect and would soon have a warrant out for his arrest. However, the caller was Jeremiah's mother, and what she told the police was that they could stop looking for him because her son was dead. Did he die by suicide? Yes. On Tuesday, a day after Nick died, Jeremiah had driven his his maroon Chevy van to his father's house in Edgewood in rural Van Zandt County, about 200 miles away. There he had hidden out to avoid being arrested for the homicide. But he was pretty sure or pretty aware that the walls were closing in on him. Gary Wilkerson, Jeremiah's father, was aware that his son was wanted by the police. Although the two had not spoken in about two months, Gary's wife, who was not Jeremiah's mom, had heard from a relative in San Marcos that police had published a description of four young men and a van that matched Jeremiah and his friends. Gary arrived home from work on Tuesday sometime after 4 p.m. He noted that his son's van was parked in the driveway and was initially relieved that Jeremiah had come home to him rather than trying to run away and evade the police. But Jeremiah wasn't in the house. Gary thought, that's okay, I know where he is. He knew that his son had a favorite spot on the property in a field under a large oak tree where he often sat and did, you know, some thinking when something was bothering him or he was upset. Gary walked toward the oak tree about 100 yards behind the house. Sure enough, he could see his son lying on the ground under the tree. But when he got closer, the Colt 9mm pistol in his son's hand glared black in the fading light and the gunshot wound gaped in Jeremiah's head. He called 911 at 4.40 p.m. Jeremiah had, in fact, shot himself, no doubt in despair over his role in the events that led to Nick's death, and I think feeling as though his life was over as well. Why did Jeremiah do this, and what do we know about his background that would have led to this? Um, I want to tell you a little bit about him now, because it seems like, wow, how did this escalate, and how did this go so far? San Marcos Police Chief Griffith said in the statement that he regretted that this tragedy had profoundly touched the lives of two families and two communities, this truly, you know, senseless act of violence. We now have families grieving over the loss of their children, and for what? There is no reason these deaths had to happen. Jeremiah Wilkerson grew up in McMahon, Texas. His parents split when he and his brother were young. After that, he lived with his mom and her fiancé in Lockhart. So he graduated from Lockhart High School with A's and B's and enrolled in Southwest Texas in 1996, which was the same year as Nick. Jeremiah was studying math at the time. Unlike Nick, though, Jeremiah dropped out after his first year. He liked to party more than he liked to study, Jeanette told Texas Monthly. Jeremiah had been a a Boy Scout at one point in his background, obtaining the highest rank of Eagle Scout. Other parents who knew him and his Irish twin young brother from scouting said his mom, Jeanette, was very involved in his activities. They said he was a nice, polite kid. No one could have saw this coming. But that wasn't entirely true, Amy. You know, there were some red flags. Jeremiah had gotten into some trouble before while he was in high school. I mean, it was typical dumb teenage boy stuff, you might say, or just typical uh, teenage stuff. So he was arrested in June 1995 for playing mailbox baseball along a country road. He received a deferred sentence on the condition that he perform community service and pay a $200 fine. 
I mean, Amy, you probably remember this from even when you were a kid, but that's when you drive up to a mailbox and you take a baseball bat and smash the mailbox off. Mm-hmm. Right? I, never I mean, did it. It's, no, I never did it either, but it's not what we would consider probably serious crime, right? Mm-hmm. Nope. All right. So after Jeremiah dropped out of Southwest Texas in the spring of 1997 and moved in with his dad and stepmom in Edgewood, he got in some more trouble. He was found with pot in his car, a violation of the terms of his probation. And then he got his 15-year-old girlfriend pregnant while he was 19 at the time. So he's not headed in the right direction. Now, it's not clear whether Jeremiah did time because of the probation violation or this is statutory rape. Mm -hmm. Um, The age of consent in Texas is 17 and she was 15. But either way, he was sentenced to six months in a work camp, which is a low-security alternative to prison. And these types of um, programs are usually used for relatively low-level, younger, youthful offenders. Jeremiah was released in April 1998, and he and his girlfriend Summer and their son moved in with his father. His son's name was Nicholas. Oh, wow. That's ironic. Yes, After his release, his mom would say that he seemed hardened. He wouldn't talk about the prison camp, saying only that he never wanted to go back there, which I don't think is surprising. But it didn't go well with Summer Jeremiah and Nicholas living with Gary. Gary was strict with his rules and eventually told the young couple to move out. Jeremiah moved back in with his mom in Lockhart, and Summer moved in with her mom. They stayed together, but they lived apart. Jeremiah worked as a plumbing assistant, and he sent 25% of his paycheck to Summer and the baby— and saved up for a ring, which he gave her at Christmas 1998. She never saw him alive after that, though. Jeremiah didn't leave a suicide note, but his father told the media that he was aware that the incident in which Nick had died had been weighing on his son's mind. So it seems that Jeremiah didn't try to deny his culpability or place the blame on anyone else. And we can't know exactly what happened that night, whether Jeremiah was drunk or high and made decisions he normally would not have made if he were sober. But in the cold light of day, he seemed to have a conscience or he decided he could not handle being reincarcerated. We'll return after a brief word from our sponsors. A family friend of the Wilkerson's, a lawyer in Dallas named Karen McRae, told the statesman that Jeremiah's mother, Jeanette, was devastated, not only by her son's death, but that of Nick as well. Quote, she has the deepest sympathies for the Armstrong family. Police towed away the van to process it for evidence relating to Nick's death. They continued to pursue a second suspect, the other young man seen at the Teak House within a quarter hour of the discovery of Nick's body. Detectives were able to identify him. If you recall, I referred to him earlier. This was Dustin, and they questioned him, but Chief Griffith afterwards said that the young man was not considered a suspect. Jeremiah acted alone, and so the case was closed. Did it seem like Dustin had any indication of what happened, and he just didn't come forward? I'm saying, like, was he um, like a lookout? I don't think he was quite a lookout, um, but I do think he knew what happened. But that is actually just my speculation. Um, I just think they determined, though, that he wasn't culpable and he wasn't part of this plan. But it wasn't quite over yet. So an additional tragedy stemmed from this whole senseless alcohol-fueled affair. Shortly after Jeremiah Wilkerson shot himself, there was another death. 
21-year-old Sonny Mullen died by suicide on February 12th. Sonny was Jeremiah's best friend. He was sitting in an apartment in Seabrook, 25 miles from Houston, and was drinking heavily throughout the day. He was despondent over Jeremiah's death, and he eventually worked himself up to doing the same thing his best friend had done, which means that he died by a self-inflicted wound in the head. Was he in the van that night? Was he at Teak? He wasn't no, I don't before. think so. No. Um, he was just so upset about his friend's situation. And who knows? I'm sure there were other factors going on in his life. He was found sitting on the couch in his sister's friend's apartment, one bullet in his head, gun in his hand, and he did not leave a note. Sonny's father spoke to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram saying, quote, this is beyond tragic. What's going on with the young people today? Jeremiah's mother said that Sonny had told some friends that he was upset that he had not been there for Jeremiah. Sonny clearly took the blame on his shoulders for Jeremiah's suicide. Okay, let's return to this issue a little bit of binge drinking. After Nick's death, Southwest Texas was aware that it had been thrust into the national spotlight. The double whammy of Nick being killed and Aaron Durante being hospitalized and nearly dying from alcohol poisoning was a very bad look for the school, already struggling with, as I told you before, its party reputation. The school had already suspended the 14 fraternities, but now local law enforcement formed a task force of sorts to brainstorm on ways to curb the problem. Per the statesman, the task force consisted of officers from the San Marcos Police Department, the Texas Alcoholic Beverage Commission, the Hayes County Sheriff's Office, and the Southwest Texas Police. They considered really aggressive strategies such as planting underage drinkers at parties and arresting those who served them. Chief Griffith said that of the task force mission, quote, we have to get the message across that there will be consequences. In a radical step in August 1999, Southwest Texas ended up banning all alcohol from fraternity houses. Now, they were only the 16th school in the nation to take this step and requiring that large social gatherings take place off campus with responsible third-party entities serving alcohol and enforcing the drinking age. So really, this placed the liability onto the third-party vendor. Mm. I also think they might have gone too far in the other direction because I don't think it's realistic to think that these fraternity members are just not going to drink. They'll just figure out other ways or do other things. It also sounds like they're kind of shifting the problem then to yep. someone else yep. a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, Texas Monthly's expose in Nick's case says his death struck the students hard, and many of them realized they needed to take more care of themselves and their classmates. A vigil for Nick was attended by hundreds. Debates sprang up among campus publications about whether fraternity culture was to blame for what happened. Some students felt the fraternities had been given a slap on the wrist, while others felt that they were the scapegoat. The Daily University Star quoted a student saying, I don't think all the fraternities should have been suspended. They shouldn't be held accountable for something that could have happened anywhere, which I also think is a fair point. As for Teak, they never returned to the murder house. It was reported that they pledged to pursue an anti-violence education campaign and crack down on attendance at parties by outsiders. Of course, they vowed to ensure that those under age 21 were not drinking at their parties. They started a scholarship in Nick Armstrong's name, and they said that they now truly understood the meaning of brotherhood. The next semester, they gave bids to 30 students, more than any other Greek organization on campus. 
Following that event, Southwest Texas changed its name to Texas State in 2003. According to the statesman, by 2017, the school had grown to 39,000 students, about 2,400 of which, so that's about 6%, um, were involved in Greek life. None of the Greek houses were located on campus, but they were just across the street, off campus though. But there were more deaths. In October 2016, there was a horrible accident that involved a freshman sorority sister named Jordan Taylor. Taylor's sorority had rented a party bus to drive to a fraternity party at Cool River Ranch in Martindale. Um, this was pretty standard, now a standard activity now that, the remember, the school encouraged off-campus parties. But the bus had malfunctioning brake lights, and the company instructed the driver to leave the bus on the side of the road at the ranch. And they were sending another bus to transport the girls back to the school after the party. Taylor was discovered to be missing, though, and the next day, unbelievably, her body was found by the mechanic sent to address the brake lights. She was somehow stuck under the faulty bus. Police came to the conclusion that she, she had been dragged 500 feet under the bus's rear axle on a gravel roadway to her death. This from MySanAntonio.com. The body of 20-year-old Jordan Taylor a respiratory care freshman at Texas State was found October 29, 2016, at least 12 hours after being dragged 500 feet by a bus with mechanical issues near Cool River Ranch, a music and tubing venue used the night before by four Texas State fraternities. I'm really, this really confuses me as to how she was found or how she got under the, the bus. The party had attracted 4,000 students and had been shut down by the police after noise complaints. I mean, that's a huge yeah. party. When the cops arrived, they found vomit all over the bathrooms and students passed out everywhere. Jordan had alcohol and marijuana in her system when she died. Jordan's father, Freddie Taylor, sued for $10 million in damages, naming his defendants responsible for his daughter's death, the four fraternities that attended the party, the venue, the bus company, and the driver. Mr. Taylor's complaint alleged that the defendants knew or should have known that allowing the fraternities to have an event such as the one held at Cool River Ranch was dangerous. Instead, they turned their heads and pretended not to see the inadequate security, poor lighting, underage drinking, over-intoxication of invitees, and the reckless driving of the buses entering and exiting the property the night of the event. But the university also went after the frats after they learned that the fraternities had violated all sorts of alcohol-related policies at the party. The Greek organizations involved in the party had told their members to lie, they found out. The four groups were, quote, found to have texted chapter members to tell university officials that the party was not one of their events. Drinks were not being served from the bar, and everyone had their own drinks. It always amazes me that people don't think that text messages get read by law enforcement. It amazes me, too. I mean, this was not true anyway. They were serving beer and boxed wine all day. They also had not bothered to card the minors, of course. Box Sorry, wine, boxed right? wine, yeah. Right. Um, per the statesman, the fraternities ignored other Texas state rules limiting parties to two guests per member and requiring a guest list for admission when the event offers free access to alcohol. So Texas State suspended the fraternities for periods of up to five years. 
But it didn't quite end there. In November 2017, 19-year-old Pledge Matthew Ellis was found dead the morning after the Phi Kappa Psi fraternity midnight party at an off-campus site. A tox screen showed that his blood alcohol level was 0.38, which is four times the legal limit to drive. Matt was a tennis devotee, Boy Scout, and active churchgoer who aspired to a mission trip. Fraternity encouraged midnight binge drinking resulted in his death. Now, Phi Kappa Psi was already under suspension by the national chapter. The event they held violated that suspension. And as a result of this tragedy, the national organization revoked their charter and they were disbanded. Matt's death had a major impact on fraternity life as well at Texas State. Um, immediately after his death, the university formed a task force of 24 faculty, staff, advisors, alumni, and students to review the governance of Greek life organizations on campus. While under review, all fraternities and sororities were suspended by order of University President Denise Trouth. That was per the UniversityStar.com. This review took four months. The task force came up with a slate of new policies that would govern Greek organizations going forward. In order to be reinstated, each fraternity and sorority's chapter leadership would be required to meet with university staff to review the new policies. And each member of the Greek organizations would have to formally agree to abide by the new policies and to work towards any substance and alcohol abuse, hazing, sexual misconduct. Every fraternity and sorority that went through these steps was reinstated as of March 1st, 2018. The statesman summed up the new policies as follows. Quote, the new rules included stepped-up new member orientation, leadership education, risk reduction planning, limits on attendance at social events involving alcoholic beverages, upgraded training of chapter advisors, and higher academic standards. Under these rules, alcohol was only permitted in private living quarters for residents above the legal drinking age. They were required to consume below 15% of alcohol by volume. Um, hard liquor was banned altogether in fraternity houses. New members had to have a grade point average of at least 2.7. And no social event with alcohol could exceed 400 attendees. So there were a lot of changes. Criminal charges were filed in connection with Matt's death as well. Not against the school or fraternity, though. Against a student, Austin Rice, who was a 19-year-old sophomore at the time Matt died, and he was indicted on the Class A misdemeanor of furnishing booze to a minor, even though he was also a minor. Matt was the student who I was just saying, he just he died of a binge drinking. He was indicted on the Class A misdemeanor of furnishing booze to a minor, even though he was also a minor. He ended up pleading no contest and being sentenced to two years probation. Austin had furnished Matt, you see, with a bottle of bourbon. An investigation was conducted into whether any area liquor establishments had knowingly sold the bourbon to underage Austin, but none were cited or could be discovered. So we're going to end by excerpting an opinion piece from the Austin American Statesman that sums up this continuing problem that has resulted in scores of deaths of college students around the country. Texas State University lost two students in fraternity-related deaths over the past two years. Not because the university's rules allowed reckless binging on alcohol, but because the culture did. This week, the university announced sweeping new policies for Greek organizations after the deaths of Matthew McKinley and Ellis and Jordan Taylor. We welcome this more vigorous effort to prohibit underage drinking. But let's not forget that Texas State already had such policies on the books. 
bulking up the rule book isn't enough. Administrators must promote a culture shift by using new tools to publicly hold fraternities and sororities accountable and by imposing swift, serious penalties for students who endanger others. They go on to explain how these new policies represent progress, but Texas State can do more. The three student deaths we discussed today that all took place at Southwest Texas, now Texas State, were quite different, Amy, but they were all attributed in some way to out-of-control students drinking and partying. Matt Ellis binge drank until he died. Jordan Taylor seems to have succumbed to a, a freakish accident, but one that probably would not occurred if there had been, you know, not so much alcohol and, and other substances involved. Then there was the Nick Armstrong case. We'll close by circling back to that one. Was his death attributable to inappropriate behavior by Greek organizations at Southwest Texas? I mean, yes, he died after a fraternity party where there was an altercation between drunken men. Yes, he was passed out, you know, after midnight partying. And he was therefore in a vulnerable position on the couch, unable to protect himself. But was the unforeseeable rage unleashed by Jeremiah Wilkinson on Nick related to fraternity activities? Or was this the result of an outsider who felt inadequate and unequal to his former peers, taking out his anger on someone who represented all that he himself did not have? I think all of those are possibilities, right? I don't think it's absolutely not fair to blame the victim in this case or drinking yeah, I don't think in Arm in the Nick Armstrong case you could really point to the fraternity's behaviors, not as much so as some of the other cases that you highlighted. Yes, I would agree, but in Nick Armstrong's case there are many possibilities, but there is a big picture here and that we know that binge drinking on college campuses occurs and it can involve so many negative consequences. It can ha- involve accidental death, death by suicide, sexual assault, and a range of other crimes. As I mentioned earlier, the problem in my policy class that I often discuss is the need to react quickly and to pass some legislation. And so it seems that's what the school did, but that didn't work. Why? Because, again, it was a knee-jerk reaction, and that's why most policy fails. So I think one of the takeaways here is that you need plan change with the cooperation of many stakeholders, and you need a problem-oriented approach. And that can absolutely work. And I think that that's the way that binge drinking on college campuses should be addressed with this systematic approach that focuses on the underlying causes. And that's the takeaway from today's story. We thank you all for listening to Campus Killings, and we hope you'll join us next time. Campus Killings is hosted by Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Schlossberg with research and writing by Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to follow Campus Killings on social media. You can find Campus Killings on Twitter with the handle at Campus Killings or on Facebook by searching for Campus Killings Podcast. Be sure to tune in every other Saturday for new episodes of Campus Killings.